invite you to come on in. We're going to get started. Come on in and grab your seats as we're going to start our adult Sunday school class this morning. Thank you for joining us. We are going through this class on how to study the Bible, and uh, I hope that you've been able to benefit from our survey of Scripture over the last couple lessons already, and that you recognize that these lessons are to be taken in a whole together. So although we've looked already at why we study the Bible, and then also looking at how important prayer and reading is for Scripture, today we're going to talk a lot about um, hermeneutics. Uh, what it means to look at and read Scripture, looking for its intended meaning, and then also um, introduce really the first step of inductive Bible study and what that looks like. So if you'll bow your heads in prayer with me, um, let's go before our Lord before we uh, look at these truths this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to be students of your word. We ask that you would give us humble hearts, that we would bow low before you, recognizing that you are the creator and that we are your creation. And Lord, we ask that you would give us teachable spirits, that we would be moldable according to your word, that we would delight in it, that we would love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we would pursue knowing you, and that our love would grow in accordance with knowledge, that we would grow in discernment, so that we would be fruitful for your kingdom through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We thank you for Jesus. We ask that you would help us to delight in him each and every day of our lives, and that that would be evidenced in our fervency to know you in your word and to meet with you in prayer. We love you, Lord, and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, our first topic this morning that we wanted to dive into is this big word called hermeneutics. So, what is hermeneutics? Well, we've already talked about this topic a little bit in addressing the topic of Bible study. It's really um, defined as the art and science of interpretation. It has to do with how we actually read things. What's the process with which we understand something that is being communicated to us? And we looked over these last couple weeks, um, especially highlighting the mandate for, excuse me, the mandate for Bible study um, in 2 Timothy 2.15. So this verse says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. There is a right way to handle God's word and a wrong way. So it's important for us to understand when we come to study God's word, what are principles, what are some tools, what are some rules that we need to know as we look into God's word. And there's, there's several different types of hermeneutics and four primary ones that are alluded to, um, even just in um, common knowledge. So uh, these four are the literal hermeneutic, there's a moral hermeneutic, there's a allegorical hermeneutic, and a mystical hermeneutic. So this mystical hermeneutic is really um, derived from this idea of where the text leads me according to my own feelings, according to what my intuition is. It's much more driven on this idea of the meaning lies with me. So a mystical understanding is not necessarily the approach we want to take with God's word, right? Also, there would be an allegorical one. An allegorical is um, an expression of ideas by the means of symbolic fictional figures, so we know that scripture is historical, that these are real true events that have happened, and so we wouldn't want to come to scripture looking to allegorize these passages or allegorize these um, narratives and these 
um, didactive teachings of Scripture. So allegorical is not a hermeneutic that we would want to take to Scripture. There's also uh, the moral hermeneutic. So this seeks to find kind of an ethical lesson from a story. Maybe you've heard this in tales or fables that what's the moral of the story? But that's again trying to import or um, convey that the story itself, the details related to it, are really just a, really the only purpose is to draw your attention and capture your attention to communicate one main ethical idea. And we wouldn't want to come to scripture just moralizing things of we should do these things. Instead, what we'd want to do is look at a literal hermeneutic. So when we speak of a literal hermeneutic, that doesn't mean we force every word to be a um, definition or this one way of thinking, but rather we take it in its literal sense. Um, It's the plain, simple meaning and understanding of language as communicated. So what we want to do is look this morning at what is a literal hermeneutic? How does that really play out and why is this so important? And for us to really not get drowned out in the terminology, I want you to understand that everyone has a hermeneutic. Um, If you've ever had miscommunication with a person before, it's because you were interpreting what they're saying according to what you understand. So miscommunication is a misunderstanding or interpreting of communication. Everyone has a hermeneutic behind their reading, behind their interpreting. It's important for us to recognize it and really lay out what it looks like. So let's specifically look at how this applies, though, in our interpreting and our studying of God's word. So let's pull up the whiteboard and look at God's word first. The Bible says, John 17, 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word, speaking to God, is truth. God's word is true. It is inerrant, it has no errors, and it is not able to be an error. There is no, um, it is um, infallible, we would say, is the theological term. So there's an author who is, God is the divine author using human instruments. And we also have us, right? The reader that's coming to God's word, his truth. And we need to understand that these are the characters involved in Bible study. We need to know that there is an author and there is one who is seeking to understand the truth that has been conveyed. But we need to really think through this idea of hermeneutics. If we're looking to understand and study God's word, what we're doing is we're seeking to understand where does meaning lie? Where is the meaning? Where does it come from? And in uh, historical readings, most times um, in the past, people have understood that the meaning is derived from the author. The author is the one who decided the meaning, and they use specific words to articulate and communicate that meaning. And that would be called what we, uh, as the reader, come to is an idea of exegesis. And that word just means that we're looking to draw out of the text the meaning that the author put in originally. And so that would be historically, but in our postmodern age, what we found is that oftentimes this arrow has shifted over to really direct our looking to find the meaning in the reader. The reader then comes to the text and they're saying that they'd rather find eisegesis, which is not to take something out that's already in, but rather to put something In, think of like a water well. If I put a bucket down into the water well and I draw something out, that would be exegesis to get the water out. But if I put a water bottle in the bucket and I dump and draw it down into the well, then I'm putting something in that wasn't originally there. That's really the difference. And where does this meaning lie? Does the meaning of the text derive from the author or from the reader? And we need to understand that when we come to God's word, what we're trying to do is read God's word to receive what God has given rather than get from the text what appeals to us. So meaning, rather, doesn't lie with the reader, but it actually lies with 
the author. The author had an original meaning, and they used these words to, in, to convey that meaning for us to understand. Bible study is looking at Scripture to understand the literal, historical, and grammatical context and what it was meant at that point in time. The author meant something when he wrote it down, and it still means that for us today. We need to recognize that what it meant then is still what it means today. The meaning does not change, but the application of what that looks like in our lives today, those universal truths applied to our lives, will look and apply differently. So the meaning doesn't change. The meaning derives from the author. So let's, let's talk through kind of what this looks like um, with some arrows and pictures, because that always helps me think. So the author intends this original meaning in the truth of God's word. And then we as readers, we come to the text, and we're looking to recognize, rather, what the author originally intended, what their meaning was. And so what we do is we study God's word in a literal, grammatical, and historical way to honor the author's intent. And so we're chasing these breadcrumbs up the trail to really find this authorial intent, this authorial intent. And this really gets us our main question, our big overarching question when we're studying God's word. We need to ask, what did the author mean? What did the author mean? And if we just have that question in our mind as we come to an inductive Bible study of God's word, it will guide and direct our thoughts. Because what we're saying is the author actually meant something, and I need to understand what the author meant in its original context and audience. So hopefully this is helpful for you to understand why we need to think about these principles of study and how important it is to have authorial intent in mind when we're coming to study God's word. So in the pursuit of answering this very question, though, there are at least five principles of sound interpretation that we should be aware of. So let's look at these principles together. So Bible study principles, you could say, Uh, principles of sound hermeneutics, we would say the first and foundational principle is literal. So what we want to say with this idea of a literal hermeneutic is that um, we need to look for the intended meaning, not a symbolic moralism. So these are not fables or moral tales. Rather, um, we need to understand that it actually was meant to communicate something specific. So we wouldn't want to say, this is what God's word means to me. And I know that's a phrase we use commonly as well. well. We'll throw out that phrase, but it's very dangerous to say that because what we're saying is, I am the one who determines meaning. This is what it means to me. And often what we're trying to convey in those statements is, this is what it means for me. But for me means that God actually had an original meaning, and that meaning was communicated through his prophets, through his people, to an original audience. And scripture says that it's for our benefit, for our instruction in righteousness. So it is for us in an extended way, but it's not to us directly. So we need to understand that this is not what it means to me. is not a helpful statement where people will say um, something mystical or magical. And they'll say, wow, that's deep. You know, and it's like, no, we don't want to go deep that way. That's, that's, that's making up our own meaning and bringing that to the text. It's not deep. Rather, that would be a distortion and a dishonoring of what the author literally meant to communicate. These are real people in real history using normal language. And we can understand um, literally even things like a figure of speech. So when we say a literal hermeneutic, that doesn't mean we're flatlining everything that's used. But if the author is writing poetry they're going to use within that genre figures of speech, which would be normal and expected and able to be understood. So we're, not, we're looking to understand what the author was using to communicate. 
So we want to look for, um, in a literal hermeneutic, the most obvious and clearest and most apparent meaning. Um, common phrases that are used for Bible study that are helpful to retain as you're looking in God's Word is the plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things. So as you're looking through Scripture, there may be lots of questions of things you don't understand, but look for the plain and apparent sense of the text, and that will help guide you into the literal understanding of the text. You also can say, um, I've heard it said, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. So just focusing on what is being communicated from a big picture perspective helps you not get on all these rabbit trails and side trails to say, what is meant to be communicated? What is this main idea? Secondly, we would look at a principle called a historical principle. This is to understand in the cultural moment when and where it was written. We want um, to take um, and understand the world events that are even taking place during the time of the writing. So these aren't um, texts that are modern, but they're ancient texts. We want to understand the customs at that time for the people that were writing or for the audience that was receiving. It's important for us to take and honor the historical context in which these verses, these books were written. So we would say things like, what it meant then is what it means today. As I already said earlier, we don't want to bring, rather, an ancient text into modern times. Rather, we want to take modern people and to put them into ancient times. We need to put on the lens of which it was written to understand what it meant then and bring those universal truths to our point in history today. So thirdly, we would add a grammatical, a grammatical understanding of um, these principles that we're holding up as uh, in our Bible study. So as a grammatical piece, we would say that we need to analyze the words, phrases, and even the passages in their context and see how they align and have been arranged by the original author. You see this oftentimes in Scripture. Um, Paul would make arguments based on the plural or singular form of a noun. Um, Jesus would look at the tense of a verb to make an argument from Scripture in the Old Testament. So these words are actually inspired by God, and they're important for us to, to help us trace back what is the author intending to mean. Scripture defends itself by saying that every jot and tittle will, be, will remain. It will not pass away. And there's even warnings in Scripture and curses against those who would add or remove from Scripture. The very words are inerrant and inspired. Verbal plenary inspiration is the term for that. And these words must be understood in light of their immediate context. We don't want to rip things out of context. Maybe somebody's done that to you or you've seen it done on some news channel where it happens all the time where you rip something out of context and they look like a fool. Or they look like they're a hypocrite or something because there's no understanding of what was being said in that moment around the statement. So this would be more of like a study on syntax. We want to look at sentences as a whole and how they're constructed and see how subjects and modifiers relate to one another. Maybe you've heard the phrase before, context is king. Context is king is a very good principle that comes from this grammatical principle of understanding what it is in the author's immediate context. That helps us to pursue this authorial intent. Uh, a fourth uh, principle we would um, look at in our hermeneutic is a synthesis. So what we mean by this word is that Scripture always agrees with Scripture. Jesus, when uh, being accused um, by Pharisees of being the Son of God, he says that you're claiming to be the Son of God, and he's trying to tell them, you're not mad enough yet, I'm actually saying something more than that, 
And scripture actually says that other men have been referred to as this title of the Son of God. And in his argument, he makes the plain statement, he says, the scriptures cannot be broken. So you're getting mad about something that scripture says is true, and scripture as a whole is unbreakable. It's true. It's God's word. And we need to recognize that that is a huge blessing to us as we come to this book, to understand the unity and harmony in this book. There are no disagreements This is God's word, and it is true and authoritative in our lives. And we should rightly compare Scripture with Scripture to ensure that we're getting the right meaning that the author was intending. That helps us when I'm looking at James and looking at justification, what he's saying versus what Paul is saying when he speaks about justification in Romans. So I need to look at these texts as a whole and say, okay, they may have a different angle by which they're using this term in their own context, but they can't be opposites. They can't be A and not A. They can't disagree with one another. There ought to be unity and harmony because God is the divine author of his word. And this helps us to be able to check our work. In math, my uh, teachers would always tell me, after you work out the problem, solving for X, that you need to take your solution and plug it back in the original equation, right? And that helps you double check to make sure you know your work is right. And as we come to a text and we look through it and we come to what we think is the meaning of the original author, we need to make sure that this isn't contrary to any part of scripture. And that helps us to be able to know that God is in agreement, that God is true, and that his words are all true. So we we need to interpret Um, Rather, this uh, idea of synthesis helps us to think through this statement of interpreting the obscure in light of the clear. So we want to look at these, these passages that have some implications that are implicit based on the explicit passages. So if God says a statement about himself that he does not change, and then we come to narrative texts where God says that he relented or he repented or he He seems to change his mind in a narrative sense. We need to understand that there's a clear statement of God's character that he makes, and that would help us to understand those narrative texts and what's being communicated to that audience. So it's important for us to really think through this principle as well. But lastly, uh, we would hold up a principle that um, in our Bible study of a practical principle, a practical principle. And we've looked at this already in the study of this class, but I wanted to emphasize it here as well, just to say that God's character does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we, as we study his word to accurately know who he is as he's revealed himself, we are to be transformed. But this truth of transformation through who God is is very practical and impactful on your life. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that scripture is for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness. And 2 Peter would in 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, Peter would write saying that God has given to us by his divine power everything for life and godliness. So a, a way that this has been summarized that's been really helpful for me in thinking through and observing scripture is thinking through there are time-bound truths, there are timeless truths, and there are timely truths in scripture. So time-bound truths just means there is an immediate context with which these statements are being made. And that doesn't mean it applies to every generation all the time, but that it is bound up in this specific time, in this moment. And I need to identify those truths. And then I also need to look for a timeless truth. If there are statements about God's character, since he does not change, that is timeless forever. He is eternal and he does not change. So that helps me to understand these are truths that will not change. 
And then thirdly, there's this category of timely truths. A timely truth is applying these universal truths about who God is, about the fallen nature of man, about the sinful world we live in that's broken and under a curse. We can apply those truths timely to our present age and say, what does this look like today? How should I live differently in light of these truths of God's word? And this is These are uh, five principles that help us really steer in the direction that we already looked at, which is pursuing authorial intent. Pursuing authorial intent. And you can call this Herman's house, because some of you are thinking, Herman who? Hermeneutics what? I don't know that word. So think about this as Herman's house. You have these five pillars and structures that you can put together that help you guide into this direction, this doorway into understanding what the author originally meant. And these, these are guidelines and boundaries that will guard our thoughts and our thinking as we look to understand God's word rightly, that it is breathed out by God and we need to honor his original intent for us. So hopefully that has been helpful for you to understand the big picture of hermeneutics, but this morning we want to go and zoom in a little further and we're going to look at the actual process of Bible study. So One of the most helpful processes that you can do in coming to God's Word is what's called an inductive Bible study, an inductive Bible study. And there's really two kinds of reasonings, um, and you've probably heard of these um, in your education coming up. You've probably heard most commonly of deductive reasoning, um, but there's also inductive reasoning. Deductive reasoning, rather, is what moves from the general idea down to the specifics, and rather inductive does the opposite. It moves from the specifics that we observe and tries to go out to a general principle. That's really the differences between deductive and inductive logic or reasoning. And oftentimes the the problem with deductive Bible study, not that it's wrong or unhelpful in all ways, but you have to presume a general principle and then go to God's word to see if it's specifically true. And so you're searching more in a topical nature to say, I wanna know what God's word says about forgiveness. And so I will make a statement and I'll say, God forgives always with his justice and mercy. And then I would have to gather all these passages and look at the specific details to narrow down, is this deductively what scripture says as a whole about this topic? But rather, inductive Bible study helps us do the inverse. We look at a specific text and we say, I'm not coming with a presumption of what this text says, but I want to understand what the author's original intent was. So I'm going to look at the details, the prepositional phrases, the nouns, the verbs, and I want to go from these specifics to build out a general principle of what it looks like to understand what the author was originally conveying generally. So an inductive Bible study goes from specific to general, and what are the actual steps? There are three steps primarily to this process. Um, Throughout it, you're needing to pray and read, as we already talked about last week, but these are really the three primary steps for an inductive Bible study. The first would be observation. So in this uh, inductive Bible study, what we're asking is the question, what? What does the text say? And that's the step of observation that we'll talk about more today. The second step is interpretation. So not only do we ask what, but we say, so what? So, so what does it mean, rather, for us to actually look at the specifics and say, what does the author actually mean by the words he used to convey here? And then the third step would be application. So not just asking what and so what, but now we would say, now what? Now, now what does this mean for me today? How does this transform my life according to God's word and his truth? So again, as we've mentioned, um, scripture is for our instruction. Paul would say this again in Romans 15, 4. Whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. He's speaking of the Old Testament at that point. 
and it seems like a lot of narrative, but it is instructive for us to know who God is, to know the sinfulness of man in this world, so that we can rightly respond to God in repentance and faith. So I will say specifically about this text, uh, not this text, sorry, this, these processes, they are progressive. So you don't want to get them out of order. And a lot of times we'll come to scripture and we'll just jump straight to application. I read it once and this is what it looks like in my life today. So we jump and we skip to the end. Or what we'll do is we'll make observations sometimes and we'll come to interpretation. And I really haven't landed clearly on what, what was the author's original intent. And so I'll actually go back to observations and try to ask more questions and interrogate the text. To, to look deeper at the details to say, what is it that's being communicated here? So today, um, with the remaining time, we're going to look at this first step of observation together. Observation is looking at a, uh, having really a detailed nature about you. And I think all of us would say we probably scale in a different range in regards to, regards to observations. But what we need to understand is that you need to look at the little things, the specific things. You need to have an attentive focus on the facts presented by the author for you to be able to actually have observations. And some of you are snickering and laughing, which means you're detail-oriented, right? Because like my dad, he could look at my papers when I was a kid, and he would say, just so you know, you spelled observation wrong. And he would strike with a red pen and put a little carrot, and he would correct my spelling with an E, right? And he would say, this is how you spell the word observation. He just had an eye for that. He could see it um, in a split second. He wouldn't even read the whole paper, and he could tell me the 10 words I spelled wrong on it. But I loved that about him because he was detail-oriented, and that drove me to look at the details. So let's, let's throw that piece away and start over again. So... This morning, we're going to look at observation first of words, right? We want to observe the words of the text. Not everything will pop out at you in the text. It takes focus. It takes effort. But let me encourage you that good observation makes for good Bible study. This is the key ingredient of inductive Bible study, to be ruthlessly digging into the text to observe what's being said, why it's being said. And these are really just 10, 10 principles, 10 rules that help you just get your mind on the trail of investigating the text. So let's look at some of these together. So that you're going to look for words that are emphasized. Uh, you're going to look for repeated words. So sometimes an emphasized word looks different than repeated. Emphasized maybe isn't repeated, but it's something that's exclaimed. When Paul says, God forbid, he's highlighting something to say, no way. But he doesn't need to say it multiple times. Or other times, when you're studying through a text, you're going to look to say, man, the righteousness of God comes up a lot in Romans 3. So it probably has a, a large piece in common with what the author is seeking to communicate because he says it like six times in ten verses. So that should guide and direct if I'm looking for these repeated words in the epistles. Or also you can look for related words. So sometimes you'll look at um, synonyms or subject matters that he's using different words, but they're all pointing to this one topic. So you want to look for related words. You also want to look for patterns. So you'll see patterns even of ideas and topics. Um, I was looking at Philippians earlier, and it seems to be that there is this cyclical pattern of what Paul is saying in his argument that Christ has done something, he has changed me, and so I am to live in unity with God's believers, and that looks like humility. But then I keep studying the next section, and it's like he actually repeats this over again. He talks about God accomplishing something in me, and that I should be unified, have the same mind, and I should pursue humility despite opposition. And so when you see that, that helps you to see there's a pattern 
of which he's trying to communicate. He's applying it in different situations. Maybe it was external opposition versus internal, but you see these repeated patterns in the flow of the conversation that's being written in Scripture. Another observation of words would be um, critical words. So there's going to be, in the context, critical words that you couldn't understand what was being said without this word. There's certain texts where as you read through it, if this word wasn't included, maybe it's not repeated, but this is a pivotal word that really explains and opens up the whole meaning the author is trying to get at. Sometimes there's theological words that are really just profound in their nature, like propitiation. That's a very specific word to articulate um, a meaning, and so I need to really dig deeper to say this is a very rich theological word, and I need to understand the context with which John is writing and saying that he's the propitiation for our sins. Also, we want to look at historically particular words. There's times uh, where the authors in the New Testament, or even some in the Old, they look back historically, and there's specific terms or words that are used, talking about festivals or communion or customs. They're all looking back at uh, the, I was, when I said communion, I meant Passover, but they're looking back at these things, and they're saying this is a historically rich word. It's, it has a lot of meaning packed into it, and the audience would have known the context of which this came up, and I should go back, and I should look at what is the particular context of this historical word that's being used. Sometimes there's um, uncertain words, so if you're ever reading through a text, write down any words you don't know. So it's just you and the Lord. So have some humility and say, I don't know what this word means. I'm going to write it down. And there's actually a huge benefit nowadays with the translators. They, they've done all this scholarly work for you, and they've picked the English word that best articulates it. So if you don't know what that word means, they did a lot of labor and intensive study. So let's benefit from that, that effort and say, I'm going to look up this word so that I understand what it means definitionally, and then I'm going to look at the context of how it fits into this sentence and what the author is saying. You're also going to look at uh, words that can be figurative. There's figurative language in Scripture. There's also symbolic words in Scripture. You'll see this a lot in poetry. That's painting a beautiful picture to stir our emotions, to see and marvel at who God is. And so we need to look for those types of words. But our presumption should be that they're articulating literal meaning unless the genre gives us tools for us to be able to understand the figurative and symbolic nature of some words that are being articulated as well. So our goal in these observation of words, though, is not to be um, atomic in nature or to be so zoomed in that we miss the big structure of the sentence. But starting at a granular level will help you to understand and build out to get a bigger picture of all the details contained in the text. So our goal in studying the words is to eventually build it out to a summary of your observations. And you want to make really a textual summary statement. You want to read through 10 verses, and after you've looked at the words and interrogated them and, and grown in your understanding of the flow of the sentence, you really want to understand what's a way I can summarize um, in my own words the, the author's intended meaning here. And forcing yourself to do that will help you dig deeper, because if you can't do it, then you get to go back and look at more words. So I encourage you to, to really think through observing the words specifically in God's scripture. Also, what we need to do is we need to observe genre. We need to observe the literary types that we find in scripture. The Bible is made up of several books that contain different styles of writing. We must properly recognize the literary categories of each passage when we read if we're going to find the author's intent his meaning, and to find it correctly. Categories of literature have different features that aid us, really, in understanding the message that's being conveyed. So broadly, we would start with saying, what is the genre of the entire Bible? We would say that that is 
revelation. That this is all God's revelation of himself, and we need to have that as the header of everything we look at, that this is primarily about God, that he is the main character, and he is seeking to reveal himself. But he's done this through human instruments, and he powerfully proclaims the knowledge of himself to his creation in some literary ways. And these are um, really big headers that help us kind of categorize most of the passages of Scripture. So there would be three primary literary types, we would say. There are narrative, poetry, and disclosure. Narrative makes up for um, almost uh, about 44% of Scripture. Poetry is a third at 33, and then disclosure is really 23%. And I think a lot of us spend time in disclosure because it's clear, um, and narrative can be kind of hard to understand, or it has a lot of... Um, uh, genealogies in it, and we kind of just like tap out, and we're like, I don't know those names, and um, so we'll, we'll get tied and bogged down in narrative, and so we'll run to disclosure, but it's good for us to look at all of these as inspired by God, and they're literary types for us to understand in a better way what God was meaning to communicate. So in narrative, you'll look at a text that makes a point primarily by telling a story. You're looking at the setting, so that would be the time and the place, and you're looking at the characters. Um, typically, there's a protagonist or an antagonist, and you want to you think about it in a narrative way, and there's a plot. So there's conflict, and there's a seeking of a resolution to this conflict in the story. Often, there'll be um, foreshadowing or flashbacks. The narrator will often use humor or irony in the storytelling, and so you're looking for these sort of things in narrative literature. In poetry, rather, you would look at a text that um, normal language is often modified to intensify the impact of the truth it wants to convey. So there's several poetic devices that you can rearrange. Uh, they, they've arranged intentionally the sentence structure of how they relate to each other. Uh, they use figures of speech or word pictures. And for Hebrew poetry especially, they use this idea of parallelism. And simply parallelism is really just the rhyming of ideas rather than sounds. So they're trying to take ideas. And so you're looking at the structure of a, a psalm or, or a song that's written even in the middle of a narrative. If Mary breaks out in song, I want to understand she's, she's singing a song. And so there's going to be ideas that are, that are roped in there that help me to see what the main point of what she's rejoicing in. We'd also look at disclosure. Um, this is more of a text that presents a logical sequence of ideas. So you're looking at the logical connector words. In, in disclosure, you're looking for the words like therefore, or for this reason, or yet again. So there's, there's words that you're looking for in these different sorts of literature that you instinctively know when you open the book, but if you don't make the observation and write it down, you might not be having that toolkit in your mind to say, I need to be looking for these specific types of words or word play or even um, uh, narrative type tools to be able to understand uh, the types of literature that, that the Lord is communicating through. So beyond types, we would say there's even specific genres. So to mention a couple briefly, um, a couple genres, there's uh, apocalyptic genre, there's epistles, there's gospels, uh, there's prophecy, there's psalm, there's story, and there's wisdom. And these all use different tools, and I would just encourage you to think through the importance of genre, and there are lots of good study tools that help you to emphasize what is in each of these categories. So apocalyptic would be a highly symbolic type of um, literature that's concerning with the end times. Epistles are letters that are written to early churches or individuals. Gospels tell the story of the person and work of Christ, his ministry, and his death and resurrection. 
Prophecy um, is any writing in which the author speaks on behalf of God. So when the author implicitly or directly says this phrase, thus says the Lord, that would be a prophetic uh, literature style. Also with um, psalms, there's poetic songs and prayers, praise, thanksgiving, even there's lament psalms. So understanding the categories that can come even under these headings of genres. Uh, There's stories that record event or events that have taken place, and then there's wisdom genres, which offer insight on how to live rooted in the fear of the Lord. So understanding these will help you as you come to the text, looking for specific tools to interpret the, the author's original intent, because they chose a genre according to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to, under, to communicate these truths for us to understand. So thinking through an observation that you need to make in this step is what sort of genre am I dealing with? What kind of things should I be guiding, my, should be guiding my study to say, the author's thinking this way and writing this way, and I need to have my mindset in that way. So this is more, um, there's plenty more for you to search and kind of building your toolkit um, and to look for clues, but I want you to know that it's more intuitive as well. So don't feel like overwhelmed with, I have to learn all these genres and know every category. Um, it's more like getting to know a grocery store. You kind of know the general feel of it already, and you kind of have these instincts, okay, I'm over in the fruit, so I'm going to find these sorts of fruits and veggies. And then I'm over in the cereal, and I really need to make my way to the Oreos, but that's going to be a different aisle. You know, you kind of know what's going on, but, but we don't always have that mindset when we're studying God's Word to say, I'm actually looking detailedly for this sort of genre, and I'm letting that guide my study. So uh, but beyond observing uh, not only the words or uh, the genre or the literature that, was, that it was written in, we also need to be ruthlessly interrogating the text. And this is some of the funnest part of, of observations, is the whole time you ought to be asking observation questions. So as you're coming to this step of inductive Bible study, you need to really be um, interrogating, is the best word, uh, for um, this part of the text. You just want to be like wrestling with this text, and I want to ask every single question, and sometimes I'll even ask questions that I know the answer to because it says it in the text, but it helps you get on this mindset of like, okay, I'm thinking about things that the author wanted to answer in the text later, and so I'm going through verse by verse, and I'm writing out questions, so I want to think about a who category. Who is the author? Who are the characters involved? Who is the author writing to? I need to think through the author and the audience especially. I also ought to ask what. So what, what is the main idea being conveyed? What, what are some conflicts that are present in this text? What are maybe some key events that take place that the author alludes to? We also would want to ask when. Um, does this book say when it was written? Does this text look back or forward to other events that take place? Does the time frame of this text impact the mood, the tone, or the atmosphere of the message? Understanding the when is helpful for us as we're looking into God's word, but we also want to ask where, and you probably know all these W words, but I'm going to give you more examples. Where was the author when he actually wrote the book? You know, Paul writing in prison impacts my understanding of him telling these other Philippian uh, believers in Philippi to have joy. I mean, that, that totally changes from like, oh, he's not, you know, on the beach enjoying a coconut or something, you know, like he's not relaxing saying have great joy. He's in shackles, chained to the centurion guard. So understanding where it was written by the author is helpful. Knowing where does this action, um, the action in the story take place, the location, uh, knowing what buildings and structures and landmarks are mentioned is helpful. Even in the gospels, um, a lot of times there's, there's location stamps. Um, Jesus, when he's talking to Peter about the gates of hell not prevailing, says we're in Caesarea Philippi. 
And being at that location would have meant something to that audience, but it doesn't mean anything to you and me right now. So we need to get a map out and understand what, what was this location, what buildings were around, what locations were around. Is there something that's referred to as the gates of hell in Caesarea Philippi? That would be important for me to understand because the author put this location in there. So knowing where is really helpful for us when we're studying God's word. We also want to ask some why questions. Why uh, was the author writing to this original audience? Why does the writer mention these details, and why did the audience respond maybe in a certain matter? So there's sometimes we'll interpret a passage of Scripture, and we want to ask these types of questions. So I'm going to speed up here. So how, uh, we want to ask how. How are the characters portrayed? How did the author use this genre uh, to make his message clear? But to get beyond the W's and the, the how, right, of those general questions that are a great framework for us to interrogate Scripture, I want to give you uh, four additional categories. So you would also look at content questions. So looking at the facts presented and asking questions, <coughs> excuse me, asking questions <coughs> to fill in details. You also <coughs> want to look at uh, relationships. So <coughs> this one's been helpful for me in my own personal study to always ask, how does this fit in the flow of what the author has been saying already and where the author's going. So I don't wanna take something out of context, but that doesn't just mean the 10 verses I'm looking at, that means the two chapters before and the two chapters after or more. I wanna understand where is the author going with this? He's not just randomly writing stuff in gibberish and it's not like a journal where he comes to it a year later and decides to put some stuff down, but he's actually meaning to convey something. And there's even organizers in scriptures, even the Psalms, you can see them paired together in a specific way that, that help knit it together rather than just this set of 150 psalms. There's books that were put together of the psalms that help us to understand their relationship and the topics that they're pointing to. So relationship is a really important category of questions we should ask. We should also ask about the um, intention and the implications which really lead to the following steps. Um, but let me encourage you with observation questions Write them down and leave them alone. <laughs> Write them down and leave them alone. And this takes a lot of discipline because you'll, you'll ask questions that you want the answer to. And if it's not immediately apparent in the text, you will run down every rabbit trail and it will not be as productive as it could be. But keep, ob keep observing, keep writing your questions down, both the words, questions, looking for the genre, and interrogating this text. And what you will see is that more and more it will become clear what you are trying to do is understand the first practical step of inductive Bible study. We're seeking to look at the text and observe the specific steps. So let me put up um, briefly for you guys really seven steps because I'm a person who says, I'm happy to do it, just tell me what to do. Please just tell me what to do. I really want to know a bullet point list and I'm happy to do it and I would delight to do it. So let me just give these for you guys to, to consider as an option for you to either add to your study or to give you a baseline to start. Um, and as you look into God's word deeper, um, his spirit will guide you to understanding who he is as he's revealed himself to be. So the first step is really going to be reading the entire context. Read an entire epistle. Read an entire book. Don't just zoom in and say, I really want to know these five verses mean. Look at the entire letter. Look at the entire gospel. Also read multiple translations. As I mentioned earlier, you'll benefit from the translator's scholarship if you just look. They, looked at, they translated different words differently. So I should probably investigate that word because they labored over different options that they could use to communicate the original language. You also wanna, the third step is find the passage parameters. So there's gonna be natural breaks 
or transition statements, and that will help you to say, I was interested in these five, but this whole 10-verse section really is, is seeming to be together, so I need to look at it as a whole section. And then I would encourage you to write it out. Write it out by hand, write out the verse, write out every word, and that will help you even zoom in as you labor through writing the words. And then you get the fun part. I mean, if you enjoyed coloring as a kid, I love this part of just going through and highlighting and underlining words, color coordinating, making a legend, making notes, looking at who the characters are, and really just marking up the text to understand it better. And then sixth would be uh, define any unknown words. So as you've been asking questions, make sure you get definitions that help you understand the text in its context. And the last step would be writing out your questions, which is really done throughout the whole process. Look for key words and ask questions and interrogate the text till it's been well vetted. So I hope this encourages you to start the process of inductive Bible study even this week, to go through and, and read through an entire book and then look at a specific section that's maybe been a question for you in the past and write out questions, ask them, look for words, look up definitions and be, become more familiar with the text than anybody else so that you'll be so soaked in the text you'll be ready to move forward to understand what the author's intent was. So I hope you continue um, with us in this study. We're going to um, continue with lesson four next week, uh, Lord willing, and we'll continue to talk through the inductive Bible study process and look more in detail um, at the second step of interpretation. So with that, you'll be dismissed and look forward to worshiping with you at 1030.